0: because I had to deal with my trauma first before I dealt with my addiction. I kept relapsing because you know, my trauma would kick in and I'd panic and I was scared of my own reaction and going back to jail. So I'm like the only way I can do this is if I'm like messed up on something and you know, I really had to get that under control first. When you're an addict, you have to figure out the reason why you're doing it. Like if you're a chronic pain patient, if you're, you know, running from something, if you're traumatized, if you just can't find joy in life outside of substances, you got to get to the bottom of that reason.
1: Welcome to Linda's Corner, where we bring more hope, healing, and happiness to the world. My name is Linda Bjork, and today we're going to be talking about From Prison to Purpose, overcoming trauma, addiction, domestic violence, mental health, traumatic brain injury, and abusive, corrupt institutions. I'm delighted to welcome Elizabeth Makotowicz. Elizabeth is an artist with an environmentally friendly clothing brand featured on Les Galeristes in Canada. You can reach Elizabeth at her website, and I'll include a link in the show notes. Welcome, Elizabeth. I'm so glad that you could join with me today.
0: Me too. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you. And as I'm looking at you with your beautiful smile and looking all healthy and happy, and I'm thinking about some of your story and the things that you have endured, I'm just I'm excited. I love Victor. I love, and you are the hero of your story. So is it okay if we kind of go back in time and you kind of walk us through what happened and eventually what led you to prison?
0: So, um, I was adopted, you know, at birth and I had really good parents. Like they were very loving, very supportive, um, I was wrongfully diagnosed with, uh, depression and, um, anxiety and bipolar and all that stuff and comes to find out I'm high functioning autistic. So, um, I went through the cycles of medications and that's kind of where, you know, my problems really kind of started from. And then I started, you know, I dated older guys when I was, you know, a teenager and snuck out and did all that. But you know, I was, they still love me through it and they never abused me or anything like that. They they loved me. And, but once I got out on my own, you know, I was in these really abusive relationships. Um, my ex beat me with a wooden dowel and it was right above my eye. And when it happened, you could see my skull. So when I went to the hospital, um, They did cat scan, all that, but they gave me a pregnancy test because before you go into a cat scan, you know, they have to make sure you're not pregnant and found out I was pregnant that day and they had to sew the muscle back, then the skin back. And I couldn't lift this eyebrow for like a year. They told me I was going to have to get plastic surgery to fix it. So like when I moved my face, like it literally looked like I was like mean mugging somebody because I couldn't lift this eyebrow and um, they prescribed me opioids. And at first I took it and because you know the pain the pain was so bad but when they sent me to the pain clinic and it was clear i was gonna you know have to come every two weeks and get more pills and you know go through the whole thing and i was like i don't want to be on this like i'm pregnant i watched my entire community go down the toilet because because of these pills and you know i watched everyone turn into addicts and their lives their lives are miserable and they're like you're on too small of a dose to get addicted you don't have to abuse your prescription and get addicted to it. If you're taking 3 oxyates as prescribed every day, guess what? If you stop taking that medication, you are going to detox just like every other addict. You're going to lose your mind just like every other addict. And so, you know, the, the abuse got worse. I eventually went to um, the battered women's shelter in Bangor and they turned me away with two beds open. They at first they called me a liar. They said, you know, women come in and they're crying. You know, you have no emotion. And, you know, at eight months pregnant, he'd held a knife to my face and was pushing me around. And he goes, one more tear rolls down your cheek. I'm going to cut your face off. So after that, I didn't cry. I didn't cry for years. And these people used it against me. So I went and I got my hospital records. I got, you know, the police that brought me to the hospital, like when the last final, you know, showdown between me and him. Um, And then they did a complete 180 and said, well, your injuries are so extensive. And you know, your situation is so dangerous that we can't help you because it puts the other women in the shelter in danger. They had two beds open. The the girl that got the bed didn't even get hit. The guy kicked her car. She lived in the same housing unit as me because I lost my housing because the cop showed up. I was in public housing. And so I was like homeless because of this. And I made a deal with my father that um, if they wouldn't help me that I would sign my kids, you know, over him temporary guardianship. Cause now not from the head injury, I was getting seizures and I was like waking up on the ground, not knowing, you know, how long I was out for. And that was like one of the hardest things I had to come to terms with. Like I was no longer a safe caregiver for my daughter. And, you know, I was going deaf and blind for moments at a time. So the brain damage was like pretty significant. Like this was like life altering injury. And, um, but this, this is a problem with victim-based shelters in America. And um, so, you know, after that, drug dealers basically helped me. They were the only ones that would help me. You know, I, I needed, I, they gave me places to hide. You know, they made sure I, I, I was safe. You know, they gave me work, you know, work, drugs to sell. And, you know, because of all the trauma, I was like so hardened. Like, I wasn't scared to die. I wasn't scared to fight back. Like, you know, I had somewhat become dangerous myself. Like, because I was, I was quick to react now.
1: Is this, are you still eight months pregnant at this section in your narrative or is there a child yet?
0: No, there's a, there's a child. He was, I stayed with him for like two years after that. So my son was like 18 months old when he went to jail. So he did go to jail? Yeah, he did for like burglaries and a bunch of other stuff. Um, but he got into a high school. No, for not, to you. not for what he did to me. No.
1: Can I ask, because you said your parents were supportive. Did you ever think to maybe go to them
0: for help? They just kept telling me to call the cops. And I was scared to call the cops because once you call the cops, CPS comes and takes your children if you're in a domestic violence situation.
1: I I thought your parents were watching the child.
0: They were, but they would prevent me from getting them back.
1: Okay. Okay. Wow. So we're going to keep going in this narrative, but I would love to come back to the idea of what makes a woman stay in a relationship where she's treated like this.
0: Well, when I tried to leave, I got held hostage for three days and, you know, beaten and raped. So, I mean, when you try to leave, you're seven times more likely to die and it, that's when things get dangerous, and they know how it's. And it's just like you're like preparing for a battle, like when you break up with these men. Like that's literally how it is.
1: But if you go back, aren't you behind enemy
0: lines? There, there, there's times where you walk on eggshells, and they're nice to you, and you know that there's a lot of trauma bonding that goes along with it, like they'll, you know, like he beat me up and then he'd bring me, you know, pills, and be like, "I'm so sorry. Like, I didn't mean to do that." And then they'd come up with a long list of excuses of why, and you're it like makes your brain like I don't know. It it makes like you can't even think. Like you're just in survival mode and like you're just you're just trying to stay alive in the moment. Like that it really comes down to that. I mean, and it's it's not It's not like it's always like that. It's not like every day you're fighting for your life, but, you know, they keep you financially, you know, held hostage, you know, any money you get, like they take it from you. And, you know, I, when someone tells you, I'm going to kill your family, I'm going to kill this person. I'm going to do that. You're more likely to believe them when they've already put you in the hospital.
1: Right. So here we're, we're going to be talking about being in prison. But it sounds to me like you were in prison long before you went to prison. You yeah. spent a lot of time in different kinds of prison, dealing with yeah. different kinds of abuse. I am so sorry. How frustrating that must be. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, we're going to wade through all of this, but man, I am looking forward to the turning point where things are going to get better. But I don't right. think we're there yet in your narrative, no,
0: no, we're far from there, so eventually, I caught charges in two thousand eleven and um I- had never, <laughs> I started selling basalt because it was legal and it was being sold in the head shops. The feds wrote a whole new law um called the analog Substance Law, so they could charge you if it wasn't a scheduled substance um. And so I go to jail and, you know, I kind of live my life, you know, growing up in Maine, it's 94% white people. Like, you know, we learn about the civil rights. We learn about slavery. And, you know, you kind of are under this white supremacy's illusion of, oh, it's all over with. And there was a civil rights movement, but now everything's fine. Everyone's, everyone's equal. Like, that's kind of what I grew up believing. And, you know, it wasn't until I went to prison that I saw how much that is just not true at all. I mean, for instance, I met a handful of women that had been sterilized against their will. They were doing this to American inmates. One thing I noticed is not a single one of these women were white, you know, and in prison, doctor, doctors who have lost their medical licenses are allowed to work in prisons and native clinics, you know, like 60% of the prison doctors in Alabama, they've all lost their medical license. Like, they don't view us as human beings. And, you know, they're letting these people work. Groups of people that are considered second-class citizens. And it's just, like, mind-blowing to me. Because they're doing it right in front of everyone's face. You know, they just have everyone distracted with all this other stuff. But, I mean, like, the fir- my first week at Somerset County... Um, and it's a lot worse for the women. It really is. Um, like, my first week at Somerset County... I witnessed an entire pod of women get strip searched and had their areas investigated or monitored because a a, a, uh, sergeant wanted a list of who shaved their vaginas and who didn't. Those that did were written up. Now, they didn't have this rule for the men. They weren't stripping men out, you know, to see if they shaved down there or not. They were only doing this to the women. And, you know, all, all of the, all of the write-ups got dropped and the lieutenant came in and was like, oh, I'm sorry. It wasn't supposed to be like that. And, you know, like this, this is, this is bordering on sexual assault.
1: So speaking of sexual assault, one of the things I think we were going to talk about was the prison rape elimination act.
0: Yes. yes so absolutely.
1: is that something that you want to talk about and explain that, that problem in the prisons? Yes.
0: Yeah, so, um, PRIA stands for Prison Rape Elimination Act, and it doesn't do anything. So any kind of sexual anything, like whether it's harassment, rape, whether it's it's by an inmate or a staff member, you file a PRIA complaint. This is your outcry at the time. So, you know, by law, an outside source is supposed to come interview the inmate. That never happens. And um, I was forced to strip in front of cameras under duress of being maced and extracted. And when they extract you, they show up 12 deep, all suited up in SWAT gear, electric shock shields, batons, mace, rubber bullet. Um, they've got canisters of chemicals that they throw in your cell. And it's chemically designed to take the oxygen out of your lung. And it goes through the vents. So even the inmates that aren't doing anything wrong, they're getting hit with that, too. So that's what you get if you say no to these people and so they have illegal cameras in their smu cells their solitary unit cells in the state of maine uh, a lieutenant from another county showed me the doj law book and it said a camera cannot be inside an inmates living quarters you know what where they go to the bathroom where they sleep you know etc for obvious reasons they have cameras in their SMU cells in their new facility. And nobody cares because it's in me. People have tried making, you know, noise about this before and they just don't care. And there's always two men and two women in control at all times. So you have these cameras on you, you know, 24 seven. And you know, where my ex had used to trap me in the bathroom and like torture me for hours, like the, the cell pretty much look, looks like a bathroom, you know, where the bed is, you know, that's where the tub would be. So like I would go in and out of PTSD, you know, like and think I was back in my old apartment, like with my ex. Like I it, and because they, they had me on a medication, you know, the wrong medication that put me in psychosis. So I filed a Priya complaint when they forced they forced me to strip twice in front of this camera. And like it completely like it pushed me into a bad one Um, at one point. But um, when I was at Alderson. I, f- I had the, their prison file a CREA complaint because you're better off if you have an actual, a different institution file it for you. I mean, they'll, they'll most likely at nine times out of 10, an institution will cover for another institution like what happened to me. So when they got the results back from Somerset County and mind you, these jails are doing their own investigations. Like Somerset County investigated their own sexual assault allegation and they all do. So they deemed it unfounded while admitting to everything I was complaining about. So when they deem it unfounded, it just doesn't go any higher. So that's how they stop it right where it is. And then it gets buried. So Alderson wouldn't even allow me to hold this piece of paper. They, w- they read it to me and said I couldn't have a copy of it. I go, I need a copy. of That's my complaint. That's my paperwork that I filled out. I need a copy of it. I'll send it home if you don't want it on the compound. No, we don't do that. So they literally refused to give me the paperwork. And um, when you get out, you have a hundred days to file any kind of complaint, you know, when you're a prisoner. And so the first thing they asked for is was there an outcry at the time? Where's the paperwork? Where's the PriA complaint? Well, I filed one, but they refused to give it to me. And this is how they bury the abuse. I contacted the Freedom of Information Act, and they could not find this Pria complaint. And then when I got out, the captain at Alderson, Captain Grimes, and four of his subordinates all got arrested and convicted of raping and stalking inmates and tampering with Pria evidence. So I wasn't even the only one they did it to, and other inmates got it 10 times worse than I did. But this is how they're bearing the abuse. So, you know, I contacted Somerset County. I had let this go. And then there was an article in the newspaper about Somerset County refusing to give the media records about their officers. And one of the sergeants used to tell me to kill myself when I was in solitary confinement. And um, while I was like in psychosis, she told another inmate to kill themselves. And they had to cut that inmate down from a suicide attempt. So this got me pissed off. And so I'm like, I want my paperwork. I I want the Priya complaint that I filed, which I never got. I want all my grievances because she used to write on my um, request forms like, I can't wait for you to get out. So you kill yourself or so you overdose, you know, just vicious stuff like that. Like Uh you're an officer in power and you're doing this to people. There was an 18 year old girl who went to jail for telling her boyfriend to kill himself. And he did. This is an officer of the law doing this to people with mental health issues in jail like detoxing on like she's sick and she still works there she still has a pension she lost her sergeant stripes but she's still getting a pension off the taxpayers money and that's that's not right and you know so I requested my paperwork and they told me to get a lawyer and have it subpoenaed because they already gave it to me well but the law says you know, I can request it as many times as I want and they have to give it to me. The problem is there's no consequence if they don't and they know this. So they're just refusing to follow the law. And so I got a lawyer and he said, there's nothing I can do. I can't subpoena it without an open case and I can't open a case without the paperwork. So it's a total catch. Um, yeah. yeah. And he's like, he's like, I requested it. But as far as that goes, that's all I can do. And they know this. They just simply won't respond. They lied to their commissioner and said that there were no cameras in the SMU cell. They lied to their own commissioner. I said, yes, there are. There absolutely are cameras inside those cells. And other inmates were willing to come forward and, you know, talk about it. And they're lying to their own, you know, the people in power, like, above them. And it's just baffling to me. I mean, that county is as corrupt as it gets. But, you know... This is the bill that I'm working on. So there needs to be a consequence, you know, mm-hmm. for, you know, for when these institutions refuse to follow the law that they love enforcing on everyone else, there needs to be like, five, I, I propose like $500 a day for every day they stonewalling in me. You know, there has to be something.
1: So you are in the process of creating a bill and working yes. with uh, your representatives to, to get that yes. through. Because you've been on the inside and you have seen firsthand some of the abuses and just the the, the mistreatment of human beings. And yes. so that is, um, I appreciate your approach of trying to not only say, hey, you know, what happened to me, you tried to get your paperwork, let me get my stuff situated. And then let's get some legislation together and let's open the eyes of people to see what abuses are taking place so that these, this can be corrected.
0: Yes. You know, they can't even buy us tampons. Like that was one thing that I did. We did manage to get passed in Maine. Um, all jails are now mandated to provide tampons and pads free of charge because, you know, they do have pads, you know, most of the time. And, I've watched some of these female officers, you know, tell inmates, you know, go ahead, bleed on yourself. What do I care? You know, women will literally make their own tampons in there and get infections. And it's, it's, it's bad. Like you should be able to get sanitary items for free. And like the commissary, you can buy tampons, but they jack the price up triple what they would be out here. Like for instance, back then, uh, ramen noodles cost 20 cents out here. It costs a dollar 50 in there. So we're only making $5.25 a day. When you you go to federal prison, that is the starting base pay. $5.25, I'm sorry, a month. I said a day. It's $5.25 a month, and you work 40 hours a week. And, you know, we had inmates moving dead COVID bodies. We had inmates fighting wildfires for pennies a day. And, you know, they could – you could – they could save up some money and, you know, take care of their kids and, you know, do it. like if you actually paid them a decent you know wage where they could save up some money and get out and have something. When I got out, I had a thousand over a thousand dollars worth of prescriptions the prison had me on and no way to pay for it. And these were psych meds. So if you stop taking them. Like, it's really dangerous. So I was like spacing out these meds because, you know, I couldn't pay for them. I ended up relapsing and spiraling because I couldn't, you know, I completely fell apart. I had a panic attack every time I left my house. Like, I mean, it's just that it doesn't work.
1: Well, it sounds like um, you're very passionate about the issues that are at hand. So what have you done to help yourself get clean? and it's because you're in a better place now so what what has taken place between leaving and fighting your causes and being able to create your own clothing line and things like that and and getting clean from from uh, from abusing substances
0: so um when i got out of prison um janet mills when i got out like done with probation, everything. Um, Janet Mills took over for Paula Page and she expanded main care. So now, um, even though, you know, my kids weren't in my custody, you know, just getting out of prison and all that, I could still get health care. So that allowed me to get trauma counseling that allowed me to get MAT treatment when I needed it. Cause I had to deal with my trauma first before I dealt with my addiction. I kept relapsing because, you know, my trauma would kick in and I would panic and I was scared of my own reaction and going back to jail. So I'm like, the only way I can do this is if I'm like messed up on something. And, you know, I really had to get that under control first. And, you know, you have, when you're an addict, you have to figure out the reason why you're doing it. Like if you're a chronic pain patient, if you're, you know, running from something, if you're tr- traumatized, if you just can't find joy in life outside of substances, you, you got to get to the bottom of that reason. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, had a couple reasons I, you know, I, I was in a chronic, I still have chronic pain from that injury. So I deal with that. And every time I'm in pain, you know, my body wants to you know it pulls that opioid card up and that's what I have to deal with um but you know I learned how to meditate I you know I did it a lot I stayed away from all my old friends like I had to cut people out of my life and you know I had to stop doing the destructive things that was getting me there and um Yeah, it was really a matter of like staying away from everybody. Also, there's this um, art style called Zentangle. It's like meditative art. I did that a lot in jail and I'm actually creating an adult coloring book um, and I'm putting all these little tips um, about what I learned about trauma and things that helped me and you know, stuff like that. Because your own brain literally works against you. Like It will give you nightmares just to wake you up because it doesn't feel safe and asleep. State, and I'm like, oh my god! Like I, like you really once you get to the bottom of like why you know, and the part of your brain that stores traumatic memories doesn't register time. That's Mm -hmm. why you know the part you you feel like something that happened five years ago happened like last week, and so that was like
1: even more than that. It's happening now. Yeah, that's part of why it's so scary, and like you said, your brain will wake you up. So I'm going to recap just a second. You talked about how in order to overcome the addiction, you need to address the underlying cause, which could be a combination of dealing with trauma from the past or dealing with if it's pain, finding another way to deal with the pain. But just trying to deal with an addiction by itself is not very successful. We need to find the underlying thing. And you also talked about making some changes in your life, connecting with new friends so that it's not that same, you know, rabbit hole that's going to send you right back to where you were before. People,
0: places, and things.
1: Right. For sure.
0: Places and things will bring you back down real quick. And you
1: found some other methods like the meditation and doing your, your, your coloring books and finding something else, something else. So so very Distraction. well.
0: Distraction. Yes. <laughs> Distracting yourself too. Um, that was something I I learned. It, and with trauma too, like it doesn't really help me to talk about it. It just kind of brings it back up and you know, whatever. But if I distract myself, if I can learn to distract myself, you know, that's when, you know, I do better. And also, like, you know, I notice when I eat mostly fruits and vegetables and like an alkaline diet that's when you know i sleep normal like i don't stay on these manic where i'm just awake and like if i have any artificial color colorings or anything like that in my food like i will be manic and i will not sleep for you know 24 hours or something and Mm -hmm. you know it's a lot of what you eat and what you put into your body, you know, these, a lot of these processed foods are really bad for you and it will make any diagnosis you have a lot worse.
1: Right. So, eating good, clean, healthy food it makes yeah. a difference. I mean, what we eat makes a difference with how we feel. And when we feel okay, then we don't have to turn to the other things. So, those are very good points. Is there anything you want to make sure we cover before we close today?
0: Um, I, so when I got out, I created this environmentally friendly clothing brand on, you know, my own healing journey. And, you know, it's for anybody that embodies the divine feminine, like I'm not, we are inclusive to everybody and it's comes in plus sizes. And, you know, this brand is sized a little bit big. And I was really happy about that because I'm like, oh, good. It's not going to like affect anybody's mental health. So, you know, this is just, I want to make, I want anybody that, you know, rocks this brand just to feel stunning and confident and, you know, be the best version of themselves.
1: Excellent. And I think that's what we all want is to be the best version of ourselves.
0: Yes. That
1: can be different for each person. So Elizabeth, thank you so much for visiting with me today.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: In closing, I'd like to share a quote by Montesquieu. He said, There is no greater tyranny than that which is perpetuated under the shield of the law and in the name of justice. See you next time on Linda's Corner. Thanks for listening. Please share and subscribe to help us reach new listeners. And if you'd like to heal your life from the inside out, there is a free video series at HopeForHealingFoundation.org. Just click on the free stuff tab. I also invite you to grab a copy of one of my books, Like Crushed, A Journey Through Depression, and You Got This, an action plan to calm fear, anxiety, worry, and stress. See you next time on Linda's Corner.